All right, what's going on, guys? I am your host, Brett Morris, and I'm excited to be here for another episode of Recovery Revolution Live. As a reminder, I wanted to let you guys know that we are hosting the audio-only version of the live streams as a podcast. So if you can't watch the video or if we have another social media blackout like last week, you can still get the audio version. Just search Recovery Revolution Live on your favorite podcast app. And I also have another podcast called Recovery Survey. Uh, this upcoming week on Wednesday, the new episode episode is going to be with my friend uh, Sierra Carter. And she has overcome an eating disorder. And she talks about how she did that and how she tried different things like diets and, and uh, different programs. And she just couldn't find success. And so she ended up going to college and she got a degree in um, behavioral behavioral science to try to understand why she was behaving the way she was and she's developed her own program to uh to deal with that so i think that's a it could be a very beneficial episode for you guys so if you're interested please be sure to check out both podcasts on whichever your favorite podcast player is and without any further ado i'm going to bring on tonight's guest kyle brewer welcome to the show kyle thanks brett it's good to be here man i'm excited to join you this evening yeah, excited to have you on, man. We were talking a little bit before the live stream started, and 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 I feel like you left me on like a like a cliffhanger there, and I'm 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 ready to to jump in and and have you share your story, man. Yeah, you know, I had to like prime the pump a little bit and give you a couple little seeds so I could get you excited about uh, what God's done in my life through recovery. And uh, yeah, I'm just excited to share with you tonight. I'm grateful for the opportunity uh, to be here um, and to have a conversation with you. And I'm grateful for what you're doing, for what Jr., who invited me on this, is doing uh, for recovery uh, across the country, and particularly through this platform that you have. Um, and I'm just thankful to be here. Yeah, absolutely, man. Glad to have you on. It's it's an absolute pleasure. And and like I said, I I just I can't wait to hear your story because I know it's going to be a good one. Jr. Jr. and I talked a little bit about you before before we had before we booked you on the show. And uh, yeah, man, I'm I'm ready to ready to hear some more. Yeah, well, I got to say that I met Jr. Uh, two, two, three weeks ago now at Mobilize Recovery. We were both at uh, a conference in Las Vegas, and I got the opportunity the night the night before the conference starts. There's there was an awards banquet that we both attended, and they they didn't sit you with people that you came with. They set you with completely you know random people, and so Jr. happened to be one of the people sitting at my table. And I was able to meet him and we were able to just connect and network as we got ready to attend the conference. And then we had a great time uh, the rest of the week at Mobilize Recovery. It was it was special that I never would have in a million years thought I would go to Las Vegas, Nevada and leave without putting a drink or a drug in my body. So that was just a miracle uh, in and of itself. Um, but, man, I, I'm excited to share my story. And I don't know if you just want me to jump right in and kind of start from the beginning. Um, yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, well, uh, thank you everyone who's listening now live and who will tune in um, and listen later. Uh, my name is Kyle Brewer. I'm 31 years old, and you may tell from the accent, I am in Little Rock, Arkansas. This is where I was raised. I was born right across the bridge in Memphis, Tennessee. And so I was, uh, I grew up in a small town uh, outside of Little Rock called Benton, Arkansas. Prior to landing in Benton, about my the summer before I went into the fourth grade, my family and I, we traveled uh, around, bounced around quite a bit. And the reason for that was that 
uh, substance abuse, addiction, um, and everything that comes along with that incarceration, the violence, and just the, you know, just the chaotic lifestyle was was pretty common in my childhood. It, it, it was no big deal to uh, watch, you know, police arrest family members and to go visit family members in the penitentiary. Um, that was just kind of a normal part of my childhood. Just about everyone other than my mom and my little sister, Kayla, has had their own battle with addiction. Um, and even then, as we know, the family members, even though if they're not directly involved with themselves, they are certainly affected by it just as much as anyone else. So we've all kind of had our our experience with addiction. So it's really common in my family. And I like to say that I was just desensitized to, to substance abuse and just the lifestyle that comes along with that. Now, I will say my, my family did everything they could to provide for me. I never went without. I never was at a place where I had to want or need for anything. But just the the environment that substance abuse and addiction and that lifestyle creates was was what I was was raised in. And my mom did her best to to provide that role model for me. And if I would have followed that, then I would have you know saved myself a lot of the things that I'll share. I went through. Um, I say that just to paint the picture. That's a little bit about my childhood. And up in the, until the fourth grade, uh, we had moved around Arkansas a lot and then we landed in Benton. That's where my family decided to to put roots down. And um, that's where I ended up growing up and, you know, going to high school and graduating from Benton. Um, when I was about 11, 12, 13, it's somewhere in that uh, age range, a couple really important things happened in my life. Because prior to this, I was, you know, like any, you know, typical child, I, I like to play sports. I like to be outside, ride my bike. I like to hang out with my friends. I even enjoyed going to school and, you know, going to the Boys and Girls Club and, you know, going to swimming, all these different things I like to participate in. Um, and so even though I'd seen drug and alcohol abuse, I, I hadn't experimented with myself. Well, um, that was all going to change. And, and the the events that that kind of spurred that on were, were um, my grandmother passed away and she was, you know, just like my best friend, we were we did everything together from going garage selling early in the morning to digging up worms to go fishing. And I just always loved staying the night with my grandma. She was just uh, some she was like a sense of peace to me. Um, and I just loved her. She was uh, really close and I was really close with her. Uh, she passed away. And that was like my first loss to experience in life. That was my my first real experience with death, particularly death of a family member. Um, and I was mad. I got really angry and upset. Well, right before my grandmother passed away, about six, six months prior to this, she had encouraged me to go to church and she had helped me get uh, involved at a local church uh, in Benton called Spring Creek Baptist Church. And I, I remember going and I did their like a Awana, their, their youth program. And I remember uh, I really enjoyed it. I, I liked what the church had to offer. And I really looked up to a, a particular pastor there, a youth pastor. Um, and he actually ended up getting another job offer right about the same time that my grandmother passed away. So my grandma passed away in this role model in my life that was at the church, got another job at another church. And those two things were were what, uh, you know, really frustrating me. It really made me angry. I remember being in my parents' front yard, yelling at the sky, throwing rocks at the sky, just mad at God, asking him why he took my grandma and, and you know, why he was doing this. Well, that was kind of the what led to me uh, walking away from, 
you know, being involved in the church. I was there for about six months and then I walked away from it and I was mad and I knew I'd watched family members all my life change the way that they felt. And so I knew that drinking alcohol would do that. And so it was shortly after that where I experimented with alcohol for the first time. And, you know, I remember liking it. I, I do remember being terribly hungover and sick the next morning. But what I do also remember about it is that it changed the way that I was currently feeling. And I liked the ability to do that. And I liked the way that it made me feel. And so it, it wasn't, uh, you know, overnight thing that I was drinking every day, but it planted that seed that, hey, I can do this. It'll change the way I feel. Um, and so, you know, I started drinking alcohol occasionally. Like I said, I was 11, 12, 13. So it wasn't nothing serious. Um, it was a couple of years after that. I was 15. I started smoking marijuana and marijuana was the first one that was became a daily part of, of my life. It was uh, from the moment that I smoked it. I remember I was intoxicated and I'd always say I'll never smoke weed. I just drink. I'll never smoke weed. And this is kind of a common statement that I make throughout my life. And uh, while I was intoxicated, poor judgment, smoked weed at a party. And then I woke up the next day and I was like, well, I tried it when I was intoxicated and I don't really know what it was like. So now I got to try it again. So I really know what it's like. And so that kind of set me on the journey of starting to smoke weed every day. And it wasn't too, too long after that, that I got arrested for the first time at the age of 16, I got a possession of marijuana charge. I was down with some friends, some older guys that I was hanging out with and we were getting high and swimming and got arrested. And so in my small town, Benton, you know, everybody kind of knows what's going on and who's doing what and, you know, who, who's the bad kids in school, who's the popular kids, who's the, you know, who, family members and parents, who, who you not want your kids hanging around with and all these types of things. And um, when I caught that charge, I, I started that reputation for myself. And, you know, that word spread pretty quickly. And so I got put on probation. I'm still trying to maintain, you know, still playing sports, trying to play basketball. That was, I decided that I want, you know, I left the other sports behind. I just want to play basketball. And, so I was still trying to do that at this particular point in time, but I, I got that reputation. I got on probation and I was on, I was in the system. And uh, I remember I tried for that first six months of probation to um, continue to get high and successfully use on probation. And, and right at the end, I got a drug screen, failed the drug screen. So now I'm back on probation for another six months. And uh, now I've really got that reputation in town that I'm the, you know, I'm the the pothead. I'm the kid that likes to get in trouble. I'm the kid that gets high. I'm the kid that you don't want your, you know, your kids hanging out with. And, you know, it, instead of taking that and doing something different with it and trying to change that pers perspective about me, I embraced it and it became my identity and I liked it and I enjoyed that. And I was um, not ashamed of that. So uh, I it became a part of who I was and I, I took pride in, in, in that. Um, and so I did realize that I wasn't gonna be able to keep getting high on probation. So I started, I went back to alcohol, I started drinking every day, um, my junior year of high school and, uh, I caught my third charge. So I got the possession charge. I had failed a drug screen. So they, you know, I'd went to jail a couple of times, but the third thing that happened was I was stealing money from my employer to support my, uh, alcohol use. And they found out about it. So now I get a theft of property charge. I'm 17 years old. This is the third time going in front of the juvenile judge. And he was not happy about that. Uh, he was going to send me to C-Step, which is a, like a like a boot camp for, for teenagers. Um, but the thing was, was that I had 
continued to go to school. So I, I had not uh, neglected my schooling. I was not skipping school all the time. I, I tried to I maintain decent grades. And so my parents advocated for me to go to uh, um, rehab for the first time. They were like, he's had everything, uh, you know, has been directly associated with the substance abuse. We know that's the problem. If we can get him help, um, it will keep him from failing his senior year of high school. And that's like the only thing he has going on. So he agreed to let me go to, to rehab. And that was my first time going to treatment. I went to a place in Fort Smith, Arkansas for 75 days. And I came back. I'd missed the first four weeks of my, my senior year but I was allowed to do schoolwork while I was there. So that was my first introduction to recovery. I wasn't at all ready for that. I wasn't at all convinced that I actually had a, a problem with drugs or alcohol, um, but I was exposed to some good information. And so when I came back from that program, I started hanging out with a different group of friends. And uh, this group of friends were, were more, they drank, but they weren't getting high and they were more interested in kind of the future and going to college and, and trying to figure out what the next step after, after uh, high school was. And so that had me because that's the people I was around. I was thinking the same way. And so I'd stopped getting high. I was drinking still, but I was more focused on like what I'm going to do after high school. And it was at this particular point in time that I found something out that's probably going to surprise you just as much as it surprised me. My family had, uh, they discovered that I'm a quarter Native American. I'm a, I'm, uh, I'm out of the Oneida Nation Reservation in Wisconsin, and my grandmother was a full-blooded Native American. So that opened up a lot of benefits uh, for higher education. And so it unlocked the door for me to go to school and get it paid for through scholarships and, and the various benefits that the reservation provided. Um, and so I started looking into the school I was going to go to, and I ended up deciding with the, with the, my friend group that we were going to go to a place called the University of Central Arkansas, which was about 45 minutes from my hometown in Conway. And uh, we all went to UCA, and um, we made that decision as a group and went up there together. So I got to paint this picture real quick before I transition, and then I want to I pause for a minute and make sure you don't want me to answer any questions. But I had been on probation from the time I was 16 to the time I was 18. I uh, had had my license suspended after that third um, that third strike, so I hadn't driven, I hadn't had a you know been able to drive my truck for about six months at this particular point in time. Um, and I was you know obviously living with my parents, but I graduated high school. I turned 18. The reservation uh, issue you know gives you a check uh, for three thousand dollars when you turned 18, which is a blessing. But I'm trying to paint this picture. I turned 18. They let me off probation, not because I, you know, completed and done right, but because I turned 18 and they couldn't keep me on juvenile probation any longer. So they let me off probation. I get my license back and I'm given three thousand dollars. And now I'm getting ready to go off to college as a freshman in college in a new town um, and kind of the reins taken off of me. And so. That's what I'll, you know, I'll stop there before I move any farther and just uh, check in with you, Brett, make sure you're not wanting me to say anything or answer any questions. Yeah. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm, I'm in the story, man. I'm, I'm just sitting here like ready to hear more, but I can totally relate to, to parts of the story that you've already shared, man. Like parts of your journey are similar to mine. I can remember being on probation and, and still trying to use and like that whole, uh, almost like the thrill of trying to get away with it and, you know, continue my use and 
it, it's it's a very relatable story man i feel like there's a lot of parallels between your story and my story yeah well you know that's one of the things that i've learned in recovery is that because for so long i compared myself to you know this person that person my story I, i'm different you know all these different things and man recovery it's like our stories all like you could change up some details some places some people but like the the narrative and kind of the way things go it's it's pretty similar in almost all situations yeah definitely i'm scanning the comments and i don't see any questions that have come in yet but i'm sure we'll get some here in a little bit and i was also going to announce before uh that towards the end of the video we're going to do another giveaway so don't go anywhere guys we're going to be giving away another copy of victoria's voice uh here later on in the live stream so stick around for that and uh i'll i'll turn it back over to you all right and that book is a, is a good one i got to learn about that story at the conference so um that's exciting that you are giving that away i see my my mom and dad are in the comments saying i love you i just want to say that i love them too and i'm grateful for them but so now i've graduated high school uh I've got the money, $3,000, and uh, I basically tell my family, like, oh, I don't need you anymore. I'm, I'm going to go back to drinking and, and getting high. And so that's what I did for the summer up until I used all that money and had to go back to my family's house and say, hey, I need your help going off to college. And so I go off to school, and uh, I'm in Conway, 45 minutes uh, from, from my hometown, freshman in college, uh, released from probation, no, you know, stipulations on me, nothing keeping me from just going full blast. I'm in a new town and it's freshman. I'm a co it's in college. And so I already, like I've already mentioned, I, I love to have fun, love to party. That was my identity. That's who I was. That's who I was. Um, but something really important happened here. Uh, and this is where my story kind of takes another turn is my freshman year of college. I got my wisdom teeth removed and it was during this point in time that they gave me a prescription of oxycodone. And so I'd had prescription pain pills, not my own, but in, in high school, athletes get hurt. They might pass them out in class or whatever. Um, but I'd never really had my own prescription and any substantial access to opioids up until this point in time. So this is my first uh, real exposure to opiates was after my wisdom teeth removal. And so it's the first couple of weeks of college. I just had a wisdom tooth uh, removal surgery. I got this prescription. Uh, and I remember taking them and I just I mean, I love the way that these pills made me feel. I know I talked to some people and they're like, well, those types of medications make me nauseous. They make me sick, make me sleepy. I don't like them. For me, they gave me energy. They like had me go, go, go. And then when I mixed them with alcohol, it even intensified it even more. And like I said, that perfect storm that I was just talking about, I'm off I'm in college on my own, doing my own thing. And um, and now I've got this prescription. It was just really uh it was really a, a perfect storm for me to be in a bad situation, but um, I was able to call for at least two, two more prescriptions on this, uh, on this uh, prescription of oxycodone and say like, Hey, I have dry socket. My teeth are still hurting. Um, and they would call me in a script to the pharmacy. This was back in 2008. I graduated high school in 2008 and went, went to as a freshman in 2008. And so the, you know, the, the prescribing stuff and the monitoring of everything wasn't as strict back then. So they called me in a prescription and I, I, so I had these prescriptions for three different refills. And by the end of that, I was I was I was hooked. I was anytime I could find these pills, I would I would take them. I would buy them. I would spend my money on them because I love the way they made me feel. But honestly, I also like the idea that I could take these medications every day 
uh, basically all day long. And for the most part, nobody would know that I would ta- was taking them. They have no idea because it wasn't like alcohol. You know, I could drink alcohol but after a certain point. Then everybody knew I was drunk. It wasn't like marijuana. You know, I mean, I could smoke a certain amount of weed, but the smell and the eyes, I'd always have to hide stuff like I could take these pills and, and people wouldn't know about it, but I could feel great and I could have the euphoria and I could have the energy and just be the people person and have the fun that I like to have. Um, and so from that point forward, freshman year of college, anytime I could find an opiate, I would buy it and I would use them. Um, but I would also, you know, abusing alcohol, marijuana, a variety of other drugs during this particular point in time. But uh, opiates became the main thing, the the the, the priority, the, the main drug of choice. Um, but I loved college. Um, so this is going on. But I'm also like I'm in school. Uh, my freshman year of college and I just love I love I love campus I love just going to class I love the parties obviously but I just love the whole vibe the scene of what college had to offer and uh, I was I just kind of fell in love with that environment and I, I had this ability kind of like in high school to to do to continue to go to school to go to class and to do really good um, academically so um, my freshman year of college, the first semester was a little rough as I was adjusting. But after that, I started making really good grades and I started making, you know, 4.0s and getting put on the dean's list and getting put on the president's list. And, you know, letters are getting sent home and I'm getting really involved on campus and finding, uh, you know, my friend group and getting involved in community and, you know, learning about Greek life and fraternities and sororities and, you know, everything that, that college has to offer. Um, and so it really looked like at that point in time that I was doing really well, actually, that, you know, on the outside that for, you know, someone, a guy that was 18 to 22 years old, I was doing everything you'd expected this person to do. And I was doing it at a high level. Um, but underneath that, you know, underneath the story, underneath the surface, uh, cause I had this ability and I, and I carried this around for a long time that I could convince you if I could convince you that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing and that I'm doing good, that I'm going to make you happy. I'm going to please you, but then I can also lie to myself and maintain my denial. So I can also continue to do the things that I want to do. And that was kind of the mentality that I had. So if I could put on this image, put on this face that everything's okay and everything's all right. And I'm doing really good that, um, you know, anything that I was doing behind closed doors would stay behind closed doors and nobody had to know about it, including myself. I would never have to acknowledge it and take responsibility for it. And so that that was exactly how it went through college. Uh, like I said, I was making good grades. The reason I, that the ability to support this habit came from my scholarship funds. Uh, the incredible blessing that, that having those benefits uh, were, they also became the thing that enabled me to continue using at the rate that I was using because prescription opiates are not cheap and uh, they, but I had the finances. So I wasn't experiencing that struggle to, you know, maintain that addiction because money at that point in time wasn't, wasn't really an issue because I would get anywhere from, you know, six to $9,000 a semester of excess aid after they paid for my tuition and my housing. So I had, you know, unlimited access to these funds, uh, no responsibility other than going to school and partying and having fun. Um, and in two years into college, I, I was, I was doing great, still doing great. I joined a fraternity. I ended up, uh, you know, excelling in that area, I became one of the vice presidents of the fraternity and became the president of the all Greek council, uh, you know, serving in these different, you know, councils and, and communities on campus. 
uh, and just, you know, really doing well. Uh, you know, I would say, and I got to go on all the trips, you know, all what a college experience, whatever, anything I thought it would ever be. I got to do it. I went on the ski board, the snowboard and ski trips, the beach trips, the cruises, you know, I had the friends and the girls and the money and the, and, you know, just the parties and, and just anything that I could have ever wanted as a 18 to 22 year old guy I had. And it was at the, it was at the tip of my fingertips. Uh, but again, underneath that, you know, not too many knew the real story that was being written because it was a real dark story. Cause I mean, after a couple of years now, I'm instead of taking hydrocodone or oxycodone, now I've discovered roxycodone and now I'm, Instead of taking them, I'm snorting these pills. And instead of them costing five or ten dollars a pill, they're they're costing you know thirty to forty dollars a pill. And you know it's it's progressing rapidly, progressing. Um, and I'm lying to myself, and I'm in denial. And the bill, the, the the ability to to do all these things on the surface looking good, is actually feeding my ability to continue to abuse drugs. And so I, I continued through college that way. Uh, and it didn't really start coming to the surface till about my senior year. My senior year, my family realized that there was something going on because, uh, like I said, I get $6,000, $9,000 semester. And then two months in, I'm broke asking them to pay my rent at the fraternity house. My mom realized that something was going on that was a little bit more than just smoking weed or, or drinking alcohol because um, they knew I was doing that. I, you know, I got a public in talks. I still got arrested in college a couple of times, but they didn't know that I had progressed to, you know, doing pills the way that I was doing them. And so they, my mom was just like, you know, I think she believed that if I would just graduate from college, get that degree, that I would grow up, I would get a job, I would, you know, start a family, I would, you know, I would just kind of move on from that season and stage of life. And so she uh, enabled me, you know, she, she essentially enabled me, they would pay my rent, they would, you know, sneak me money and uh, you know, help me get through that senior year of college. And so I lent my way through that senior year. And I remember it was uh, it was May 5th of 2013, the day that I graduated from college. I'm the first person ever in my family to, to graduate from, you know, traditional four year university. And I remember waking up that day and, you know, I say that being the first person in my family, you would think that, that day would be a day of celebration. That would be a day of just honoring the hard work that I put in and my family just being proud. But that's not particularly what I remember about the day that, um, that I graduated from college. What I remember is waking up that day and what I'd done the night before is what I'd always done is I'd, I'd bought a certain amount of pills and I'd, you know, create a plan in my head about how I was only going to use this amount. And then I was going to save this amount for in the morning. But every time, you know, I'd always use more than I wanted to or planned to. And then I woke up in the morning, I didn't have anything. And so I was um, at the at the very early onset of withdrawal, because at this point, it was no longer about the euphoria or the energy or the fun that I had from taking these pills. It was about like, if I don't take these pills, I'm physically sick and I cannot do day to day um, tasks and, and function in life. So I had to have these medications to 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 just do regular activities, but especially do something like go graduate from college and entertain my family and you know celebrate and all these things. So I'm panicked when I wake up and I realize I don't have any pills and I'm early on in the withdrawal process. And I'm starting to have cold sweats and but you know I'm hot and I'm freezing cold and all those things. And so I'm on the phone going in panic mode trying to find you know some pills and. I finally find, uh, you know, a couple of hydros that, that, that give me enough strength to, to walk across the stage, and pick up a degree, because I knew that if I couldn't find those, 
then I was not going to be able to put on that mask and put on that face that I've been putting on for the last five years that says, hey, Kyle's good. Kyle's great. Kyle's doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing, and he's doing it well. And he's, you know, be proud of him and be happy for him and approve of him. And uh, so I needed these medications, you know. And so I, I found a few pills. I walked across the stage and I got a degree. What I hadn't shared up to this point is what I was studying for in college. Um, and this will just paint a picture about the denial, the insanity, the mentality that I was living in, because the degree I picked up that day was a bachelor's of science in, a, in addiction studies. And so I had spent the last five years of my life studying the disease of addiction, uh, the scientific research, the data about drugs, everything that you can think of when it was surrounds the disease of addiction. That's what I had been studying. So I'd seen it destroy my family firsthand growing up. I'd seen the effects. Like I said, I, I grew up around it. I'd saw it destroy family members. I'd experienced many consequences myself already up, up until college. Um, and I was studying now, literally in the classroom, getting an education, getting a college degree on addiction. And I believe that this information, the, these outcomes, these things that I'd seen and learned did not apply to me. And that somehow, some way, I was going to be able to stop using, stop drinking one day and just move on from it. And that would be the end of it. Um, and that I say that just to sh say that I was in complete denial. I was full of pride. I was arrogant. I was entitled. And I didn't think that I thought I was the perfect exception, the ultimate exception to all the rules and that none of this was going to affect me. You know, I had this idea in my head about what someone that, you know, had a problem looked like. You know, and it wasn't me. It wasn't the person that was doing really good in school or that had all the friends and the money and the family and going on trips and all these like that wasn't it. And so because that wasn't my reality, I, I just convinced myself that I didn't have a problem. Well, you remember I told you that my mom thought if I got that piece of paper, that degree, that I would move on and everything would be okay. Well, that's not how it happened. That's not, you know, I wish that uh, there was a there was a certain amount of education or money or, or religion that could that could give someone the 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 exempt card from suffering from the disease of addiction and that would exempt them and their family. But that's just not how the disease of addiction works. The disease of addiction does not discriminate against anyone based off of their socioeconomic status, their religious views, their, you know, their um, their background, where they came from, where they grew up, who their family is. None of that matters. And so I got that education and I was I was still left with the problem that I had that now I'd uh, you know, taking up to $100, $150 a day worth of opiates to just maintain um, and get through. So I graduated. What, what graduation did do, though, is now I don't have the scholarships. Now I don't have the fraternity in the, in the friend group and the social networks. Now I don't have the education that I'm using to, to make my life look good. I don't, I don't have these things anymore. And so from 2013 to 2017, Things spiraled and they spiraled really bad and really fast. Um, I tried to continue to stay in Conway where I was at for another year and, you know, maintain the life that I was living and, and try to figure out ways to continue using at the rate that I was using. And um, it just didn't work. I didn't have the same financial means. Uh, you know, most of my friends had moved off and got jobs and kind of went on with their life. And you know, I just realized that I created something that I, I don't know how to maintain any longer because it's it was impossible to maintain. And so I stayed up there for another year before I eventually moved back home. I moved back home to Benton. 
Uh, my family let me come home. And at this point, you know, it's I'm not using my degree, obviously, because it's hard to use an addiction studies degree when you're in full blown active addiction and you're failing to admit that you have a problem and get help for it. Um, it's just not not possible. And so I was working, you know, little odd in jobs, you know, working at a gas station, working at a fireworks stand, working at whatever I could work at just to make enough cash to when I got my check or when I got paid at the end of the day, I could go buy what I needed that could support me to for the rest of that night and through the rest of the next day. Then I could start the whole cycle all over again. And so just, you know, living basically from day to day, moment to moment. Um, no, not future oriented in any sense of the word. I was just trying to maintain, uh, trying to not be sick um, and, and just trying to maintain this uh, this lifestyle that I had. And, you know, like I said earlier, it was impossible. Um, you know, and I'm drinking during this time, alcohol, marijuana, smoking cigarettes, all those things were always a constant in my life. Just opiates was my primary uh, concern at all times, but I was always doing those other things. And one night I was, I was drinking pretty heavily, mixing with pills and I was driving, which I did way too, too often. And I got DWI. And so that ended up starting me on this two year journey of, uh, getting arrested multiple times for the same DWI because, you know, you get a huge fine. Um, and if you're, you know, an active addiction using, if you're like me, I, I could not pay a, a payment plan. I would set one up, make the first payment. And then by the second month, it, I would get a warrant put out because for a failure to pay. So I ended up going to jail three times on that DWI because I couldn't pay my fines. Uh, I finally had to set the 30 days in jail um, to set that fine out. Uh, we, they allow us to do that and where I'm from, that you can sit there and pay off a fine for a certain amount of days. And I remember being in this jail during this particular point in time and my mom, you know, messaging me on the kiosk, begging me to get help. Uh, she was using my grandmother's death and just kind of like do it for your grandma. She was she was she was trying to do anything she could to convince me to get help because she had realized um, that she had a role in this. Um, and prior to this time, she had learned about Al-Anon. Because up until then, she had enabled me. Like I said, in my senior year, she enabled me. She enabled me for a couple more years after that. Well, somewhere along the way, my mom started realizing how that enabling was actually hurting me. And she went and found a group called Al-Anon, which, you know, if, if you're not familiar with it, it's a support group for friends and family members of people that are struggling with addiction. And she learned her role in that. And she learned uh, how to make some really tough decisions. Uh, and she cut me off. My family never gave up on me, but they definitely let go of me for for a point in time and for a couple of years. And I'm so thankful for that today. But I'll tell you this, if you're a family member that's listening to this and you have a family member struggling, you may be going through this. Like I hated my mom when she did this and I called her every name in the book. I said some things that you should never say to another human, much less your mom. Um, but I did. And uh, for a couple of reasons, because I knew how to manipulate her. I knew how to pull on her heartstrings. I knew how to make her feel like what I was doing was her fault and how that she, if she doesn't give me money, then it's going to ultimately be the end. And I'm going to, you know, you know, take my own life. You know, all those the threats that I would make, the things that I would say, I, I was it was it was hard for her. I can only imagine. But um, I, I know today that if she would not have made those hard decisions to to cut me off and, and essentially let me go, that I would not be alive today. And so I'm so grateful for my mom and my family uh, taking those steps and making those hard decisions to um, 
to stop enabling me to continue doing what I was doing and start allowing me to hit that bottom and that bottom to feel exactly what that bottom should feel like. And uh, like I said, that didn't happen overnight, but I'm in, I'm in the jail cell talking to my mom. This is after that. She had made those decisions. She's begging me because she, she wouldn't want to talk to me unless I was wanting to go to treatment. And I wasn't trying to hear nothing about treatment because like I said, I didn't have a problem because I didn't look like this person or that person or my life. You know, all these things were happening. And she was begging me to go to treatment. I'm in there saying, like, I was telling her, I remember my rationale was that I'm not sick right now. Like, I don't have a problem because I'm not physically sick. Um, Because I thought somehow because I wasn't just in extreme withdrawal in the jail that if that wasn't happening, then I don't have a problem. Um, Well, in reality, uh, there was just nothing you could say. If if you said one thing, then I I would argue a counterpoint to prove that I didn't have a problem. And so she, I was like, no, I'm not going to treatment. I remember getting released from jail for the third time on a DWI charge, walking across the street because I had no friends or family that were, that were there to pick me up, using the phone from the gas station, calling a friend, having him pick me up. And within minutes of being released, we're getting high. We're on the way to Colorado to just for a weekend of getting high and drinking. And it never once in my mind, like it never crossed my mind that, hey, you might have a problem. Like literally you just got out of jail for this very thing that you, that's been following you for two years. And the first thing that you do is go right back to doing it. Uh, but I just it never occurred to me that, hey, I was not making the connection that the things that are happening in your life right now are directly connected to your drug and alcohol use. I just I would connect it all. I would connect it to not having a job. I would connect it to not having enough money. I would connect it to not having a vehicle. I would connect it to my family not doing this or doing that. But I was not making the connection that, hey, these problems, these issues, these things that are happening, these circumstances are actually directly tied to, to the things that I was doing that surrounded using drugs and alcohol. Um, and it wasn't until I made that connection that anything could really happen. Um, and so it was shortly after that that jail stint that I had found myself really homeless for the first time in my life. It was in 2016 and I was in a park and I remember like really it dawned on me that I didn't have anywhere to go. And so uh, my family had told me like, Hey, if you're not allowed on our property, you know, cause I'd burned them and stole from them and done so many terrible things at this point. They're like, you're not allowed on our property. If you come to our property, you're not allowed anywhere past the garage. And the only reason you're allowed in the garage is if we're getting on the phone, and we're going to treatment today, not tomorrow, not the, you know, we're bargaining and I'm going to stay the night. And we'll figure it out tomorrow. No, like you're going to treatment today. We're making a plan. That's the only deal. And so I, I remember that was, that was where I, where I stood with them. And so, but I was homeless and I was like, all right. So I had someone drop me off my family's house. Sure enough, I didn't get past the garage. My dad was there. Mom was there. We sat down, got in the phone book, found a 30 day treatment center, that I went to the next day and I completed that 30 day, pro- 30 day program. And I learned in that program that I had a drug problem that, that, that I struggled with heroin and opiates because uh, a- after this point I had graduated from the prescription uh, med- prescription pain pills to, to taking heroin and shooting heroin, snorting heroin, because I'd said I'd never do that. And that was one of the things that I would never uh, cross. I would like, I, I, I never shoot up. I never do heroin. Um, but the, my dealer, he had started selling heroin as a set of pills and I was sick one day and he offered it to me for free. And so then, you know, I didn't use anything else after that. And uh, but I learned in this 30 day treatment program that I had a problem with drugs. And I got I finished the program and I got out and I stopped getting high. But what I didn't uh, come, I didn't come to understand this. And I failed to admit to myself is that I also had a problem with alcohol and that for me, alcohol and drugs. There, there's no difference that I, I am an alcoholic just as much as I struggle with addiction. 
um, just as much as anything else. So I had to learn that lesson. So for about eight months, my life did improve. I actually started working in the recovery field because I thought, man, hey, now God's plan for my life makes sense. I got the degree. Now, now I went to rehab. I stopped, stopped getting high. I'm going to go be a counselor. And I just jumped right into it, lied about my sobriety date, which should have been my first red flag that this is not God's plan for my life. But, you know, I was in that insanity. I convinced myself that what I was doing was right. Um, and I'm drinking on the weekends. And uh, I learned this in this season of my life that, like I said, I'm an alcoholic, but also I turn into a different person when I drink alcohol. I listen to different music. I hang out with different people. I talk differently. I treat people differently. I make a lot more, a lot worse decisions. And all those things kind of came to a head one night. I went back up to Conway to where I went to school at and I was hanging around some old friends for homecoming and I'm drinking all day. And by, and you know, what I also learned about alcohol is when I'm drinking, I'm, I'm more likely to be in environments where drug use is happening or people that use drugs are going to be. And so I, I found myself in one of those environments that night. And by the end of the night, I was smoking weed. Uh, you know, it wasn't something crazy, but I was taking a bong hit. And it wasn't two weeks after that that I was back to taking pills. It was just like, bam, bam. And I lost my job. February 22nd is my birthday. So this was February 22nd, 2017, the job I was working. Uh, in the recovery field at that time as a, C, a counselor in training, they asked me to step down. Um, they had found out that I had returned to use and they asked me to step down to go get help and I could come back and get my job back. And instead of doing that, because what that would have required me to do was to go home to my parents and to admit that I was wrong for drinking because they had been telling me, like, look, this is not a good idea. I don't know what you're doing. Why are you doing this? And I would lie to them. I would justify it. I rationalize it. And so instead of having to do that, I just said, you know, forget it. I'm just going back full blown. So I just went, jumped right back in uh, to active addiction uh, like I'd never left. And the car that I had uh, that I'd gotten over the last eight months, I, I totaled it in a wreck because I was driving down the interstate. I'd been doing Xanax and heroin uh, throughout the day and I nodded off at the wheel. And I hit one of the, the concrete barriers on the side of the interstate and that, you know, woke me up and, you know, instead of like waking up and thanking God that, hey, I'm alive, I woke up and tried to figure out how I could lie and report this to the insurance company. Um, and so I had that car and they, I got it, you know, basically towed to an apartment complex. And I lived out of that car for about two months until uh, the company that I was leasing it from came and repossessed it uh, because I'd owed like $300 after the insurance company covered it. And so they came and repossessed it. And now I, I didn't have the vehicle that I was living out of. So I'm, I'm homeless again. And uh, I'm, I'm back to, you know, shooting up heroin. I, I've now introduced methamphetamines into the equation. Um, Cause I learned that if I use a little meth when I'm, when I'm going through withdrawal, it kind of helps a little bit. And so it's all kind of led up to July 10th of 2017. July 10th of 2017 is my sobriety date. It's the day that the journey that I'm on today began. And it's the day that I would have never thought that that would be the day that led me to where I'm at today. But this is where I'm at. July 10th of 2017. I'm in Benton, my hometown. I'm in a hotel and I'd been there for about seven days. And the, the reason I was in a hotel is because I, I, I would, you know, use people uh, particularly like women that I that I would you know get close to, I would try to find a way to manipulate them and use them. And I was particularly manipulating this one person. They were paying for me a hotel room, and that's the only reason I had a roof over my head. But what I've been doing was I was in this hotel, and I I, I not had enough money to, to to buy opiates or heroin, so I was I was using meth because I was trying to curb the withdrawal symptoms, basically trying to detox myself off of heroin uh, by using meth. Well, I wasn't a huge meth user. Um, so I had not really done it this way. 
and for several days in a row. So I'd been up, no sleep, not eating in isolation by myself. And at the end of that, I was, uh, you know, I was in a drug induced psychosis. I thought the, that police were after me. I thought my family was there trying to get me from the hotel. I, you know, my reality was so distorted um, and my reality was just uh, skewed. And I thought that all these things were happening that weren't happening. And um, that led to me calling my family, calling people, freaking out. And my mom and my family are, are you know, they're hysterical because this is just another, you know, another day in the woods. But, you know, I'm talking crazy. Um, but my uncle. So I mentioned earlier that I used to walk, uh, you know, go visit family members in the penitentiary. One of my uncles had got released and he had got connected to a Celebrate Recovery, a, a Christ Center 12 step program at a local church. And he was doing well and he was in recovery and he was thriving and he had a lot of connections to the recovery community. And he saw this phone call that I was making as an opportunity. Not that I was calling asking for help, but it was an opportunity to come pick me up without me really knowing what was going on and drop me off somewhere. And so that's what he did. He came and picked me up and he took me to a local homeless shelter called the Nehemiah House. And the Nehemiah House is a homeless shelter and they also have a recovery program. But at that point in time, I just I got dropped off at the homeless shelter and he told me I was on, on the way there. I was kind of explaining to him what was going on in my mind and what was going on. He said, look, he's like, I'm going to drop you off. here. You're going to go inside. You're going to close your eyes. You're going to go to sleep. and You're not going to tell anybody any of the things that you're telling me. And if you've ever been in a drug induced psychosis, particularly with meth, that is not how the story goes. So I went into this homeless shelter. I freaked out all night until the staff came in and they very calmly set me down and said, hey, look, we're going to call you an ambulance and we're going to get you the help that you need. So they called an ambulance. Ambulance picked me up, took me to a local hospital where I acted a fool. Um, I had to get tackled and sedated with Halidol and uh, strapped to the wheelchair and all these things because I, you know, I was just my reality. I was everything I was doing was driven by fear um, because I thought a lot of things were happening that weren't happening. And but long story short, that got me to detox. I went upstairs to detox, and they had told me when I left the Nehemiah house, "Hey, if you go over here and you do what you need to do in detox, and you come back." we can talk about and offer you a spot in our recovery program. And so I was in detox. My family came to visit me. I didn't have anywhere to go. The, the kind of the rules were set like, Hey, the only way anybody's picking you up in the hospital is if you're going straight back to the Nehemiah house. And that's, that's the only option or you're on the street, you're on your own. And so I didn't necessarily like want help. I didn't necessarily want to change what I was doing. I was just not wanting to be homeless. So I say that just to say that, and God can do a whole lot with just a little bit. And so when I got discharged, my uncle picked me up. He took me back to the Nehemiah house and I entered into their nine month faith based recovery program. So the Nehemiah house is a faith based program, Christ centered. And I entered the program and I hated it. I didn't want to be there for about six weeks. I really struggled. Um, I wanted to leave any chance that I got. I tried to call uh, and get people to pick me up and convince them that, hey, like this is a good idea or I'm, you know, I'm going to do something different and just nothing worked out. Everything fell through. Any little thought that I had to leave, God would intervene and put someone in my life that would keep me there for just for a little bit longer. And after about six weeks, a couple things happened that changed my life forever. Um, the most important decision that I've ever made is that I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And what that meant for me was not just, uh, saying that, hey, he's going to save me from my sin. He's going to save me from hell, but I'm going to also make him the Lord of my life. And I'm going to try to take uh, 
these principles and these ideas that I'm, I'm being uh, taught in this program. And I'm going to try to apply them in my life. And I'm going to try to listen to them and obey them to the best of my ability. So I said, look, I'm going to give my heart, my life to Jesus. He's going to be my savior. He's going to be my Lord. And I made that decision. And the second decision I made right behind it was that I made a deal with God. So now that I give you my life, I'm going to make a deal with you. Like I'm going to give you nine months. And in nine months, I'm going to believe that you're going to use this program, the Nehemiah, to change my life. And worst case scenario, at the end of nine months, my life is going to be at least a little bit better than it is right now. Because, I mean, life was not looking good at that particular moment. So I figured, hey, I want to make a deal with God, give him nine months and let's see what happens. And so those two decisions, uh, you know, kind of really set the trajectory of where I'm at today. Nothing happened overnight. It wasn't like I made those decisions and it was like, man, everything's different. Everything changed. Everything's better. Everything's good. No, but those are the decisions that built the foundation of everything that started happening after that. What it did, it was open my heart, open my mind, and it surrendered. I surrendered. Once I surrendered, it's not like there weren't hard days, but man, it got a little bit easier. Once I gave in to the idea that I needed to leave or I, or I wasn't supposed to be there or long-term treatment was not for me or a relationship with God was not, was not for me or a life of recovery was not for me. You know, when I surrendered, it really changed things. And I started learning. I started growing in recovery. I, they walked us through the 12 steps of recovery in this program. They walked us through a variety of different biblical studies, a lot of different curriculums. Uh, and they poured into and invested in us uh, literally hundreds of volunteers, pastors, ministers, friends, community leaders, you know, partners, everybody that came into this program. just poured their heart and soul into us, uh, to the people that are in this program and the staff there. Uh, the directors of the Nehemiah, the two men had both previously went through the program themselves. And I remember it having such a profound impact on me that these two men that were living differently today had such a similar story to, to me. Like we're, I was talking to Brett earlier that our stories have different details, different places, different people, but the stories are pretty much the same. And I remember finding so much hope in the fact that these guys are sitting in front of me telling me a very similar story. But today I look at them and I'm watching them live a life that doesn't consist of getting high. It doesn't consist of drinking. It doesn't consist of all the chaos that comes along with a life of addiction. They have families. They have a wife. They have a kid. They're they're active in their community. They seem to be happy. They seem to have purpose. They have joy. And it gave me this hope that like this can happen for me. You know, like, this is possible for me. And before that, you know, a, a life that didn't consist of either actively getting high every day or drinking was just a fairy tale. I mean, I wasn't really interested in that being a reality, but I really couldn't imagine it being so. Because when I started drinking at the age of 11 or 12, like from that point forward, like I was always either getting high or drinking and every activity in life, whether it was the lowest moments in my life or the highest moments when I was doing a lot of fun things, it all was centered around that one thing. And that was always my priority. And that was always my agenda. So comprehending that there could be a life without that was really hard for me, almost impossible. But when I was seeing other people that had been where I'd been that were living a different way, I got so much hope. And so I, they really mentored me. They really led me uh, both in my faith journey with God and also my recovery journey. And I just remember coming alive. You know, I mean, the Bible talks about becoming a new creation. It talks about people being raised from the dead. And man, I wasn't literally physically dead. I should have been on many occasions, but 
I was spiritually dead. I was emotionally dead. I was just beat down. I was broken. I was hopeless. But throughout this nine month program, I just each day I was growing each day. I was my eyes were being opened to something new. My my heart was being filled with joy, with purpose, with love. And I was just becoming a brand new person. And I learned something that it was not about uh, the Nehemiah house or, or a 12-step fellowship or a particular amount of time or a particular program. Like recovery is a lifestyle and being a Christian is a lifestyle. And so it's not there's no like start and finish line. Like what I was learning in this program was what to do for the rest of my life. What I was learning in this program was that I have to build my foundation. I have to build my life on something that is uh solid, a rock solid foundation. And for me, what that rock solid foundation is, is a relationship with Christ and and, uh, the word of God uh, and the principles of recovery. That that's my foundation that I build my life upon today. And they taught me that there and they taught me how to do that. And they role modeled it to me. They also taught me the value of being involved in the local church. They taught me the value in serving others before myself. They taught me the value of just just giving back in general. And so, I, you know, I was implementing those things. I was growing every day. Obviously, I had challenges and some days were harder than others and I didn't want to be there. But I just I fell back on those two decisions. A, God, I'm giving my life to you. And B, you're going to use this program to change my life. And so I continued to stay committed to that. And I graduated that program in April 2018. Um, and I didn't really have a solid, clear plan as far as the next step, the transition the only option that was available to me was go home to my family and my family. They have a nice home. They have nice things. They have, you know, all the comforts in the world that were much more comfortable than the homeless shelter I was living in. But I learned this about four months in. God had really showed me that, hey, you're not supposed to live at your parents' house right now. That's not where you're supposed to be. That's not a place you're going to thrive. That's not a place you're going to grow. That's not a place that you're going to become the man that I've called you to be. And so I, I was like, okay, I'm not going home. That's that's not where I'm going to go. Not because I, I wasn't thankful for it. Not because my family's not great today. Because my dad, everybody has found uh, a path to to recovery. Everybody has has started living a different life today. So uh, for the most part, we have healthy relationships and good boundaries and all these different things. So it would have been a great place for me to go. But I knew that that was not where I was supposed to be. And so I decided that, well, there's not somewhere to go that I'm going to stay. And so I went into their work program. The Nehemiah House offers a work program that you could go into. And so I I went to there. I started interning at the Nehemiah House, working with the leadership there, just serving, serving the ministry, uh, giving back, continuing to do the things that I'd learned to do for the nine months, going to church, uh, you know, every week, going to my recovery meeting, staying involved in the community, serving, giving back, all these, these various life principles um, that I learned, I just continued to do those. And after about three months of being in the work program, which puts me at being at the Nehemiah house for a year, I, I got an opportunity to, to pursue some uh, some ministry schooling and some seminary education. And so I, I left the Nehemiah house and I went to a local church and I started working for this church and going and attending their school program. And it was just such a blessing, such such a, a, a awesome opportunity to learn about ministry underneath an incredible leadership team of uh, First Assembly in North Little Rock. They poured in and invested in my life and really showed me uh, just the hands and feet of Jesus and the character of God in a real tangible way. They did that in a lot of ways. But one story that, that really kind of highlights this is uh, 
So I'd, I for for two years I, I didn't have a vehicle. I was I was working there, or I was I was just going to school there, and I was staying on site at the church. They had some apartments for the students, and I was going to school, and I was I didn't have a job, and I didn't have a vehicle. So if there were there were two things that I could look at in life, and I could say, hey, this could be different. It would be that. Well, they have these Christmas services called Family Christmas that they do the a couple weeks before Christmas each year, and they bless families. They bless members of the church, people in the community uh, in incredible ways. And uh, I was in the second service and I remember my story going up on the big screen in the sanctuary and they called me up on stage and they were telling my story and talking about what God had done in my life. And they were telling me, uh, you know, how proud they were of me. And they did two things. They offered me a job at the church. Uh, so they, they gave me employment, which my first real job outside the internship at the Nehemiah house in recovery. They gave me employment at the church. And they pulled in, they pulled the doors open, wide open on the side of the sanctuary, and they drove a 2014 Jeep Grand Cherokee into the sanctuary with a big bow on it and gave me this car. I had never owned a car in my life. Uh, any car that I had, my parents had either made payments for it or got for me. Um, and so it was the, they just handed me the keys, uh, signed the title over to me and gave me this vehicle and blessed me in a really big way. And you know, and I can look right outside this door, right here, this window right here, and there's my Jeep that I still have today that really has been instrumental in, in a lot of different ways. But tangibly, transportation is, is a huge thing, especially early in recovery. So that's just one story. You know, being in recovery and following God does not mean that God's going to just bless you with a vehicle. But what it did tell me, what it showed me was that God's going to meet my needs and that he's going to be there and he's going to show me uh, that he's faithful in a lot of different ways. And that's just one way that that church, that group of people uh, just really showed me uh, what being generous is like, what, you know, living uh, a life of giving is like. And so this was the, the environment that I was serving in, that I was going to school in, that I was learning in. And, then I learned about something called peer recovery. So I'd continued to stay involved, obviously, with church and with recovery. So to me, they're married. They're the same. Um, I, I know sometimes they're kind of looked at as these two separate paths, these two separate things. But for me, my recovery and my faith in, in God are, are connected and they work, uh, you know, hand in hand. And so but I also like I go to recovery meetings, other 12 step meetings and 12 step fellowships. And, and I get involved, uh, you know, the principles that, are, that I learn in these in these recovery meetings are, are, you know, I can tie them back to the word of God. And they're just they're just ways of for me to live and, and for me to maintain my recovery, um, but also build really good relationships with a lot of incredible, amazing people. I never knew how many amazing people, probably so many people that are, that are listening here, watching this, that are in recovery that have been through the same things that I've been through and they're living a different life and they're so amazing. And they're so incredible. And I just got to start building a lot of these relationships. And I met a guy named Jimmy McGill and he is like, he was like leading the state. He, you know, he still does it when it comes to peer support and peer recovery. He was developing this program out in the state of Arkansas. And he was telling me about this idea of peer recovery and how it's, you know, uh, in a nutshell, it's one person that's been through something is walking along someone else that's going through the same thing and, you know, and helping them get connected to recovery and resources. And I was like, hey, uh, that sounds like something I'm uh, I'm interested in. You know, I, I would love to be a part of that. Not as like a profession necessarily. I was working at the church. I was going to school for ministry. And but I was just like, well, this would be a good some good tools to add to my tool belt. So let me just uh, go through this training. So I went through the training 
and I, uh, you know, started learning about peer support. I remember my, my, my first idea was how, how do I implement, implement this in the local church? Um, and that was kind of like my thing that I was trying to figure out. Well, you know, God knew what he was doing. He was preparing me for what he was about to do. So three months after that, uh, a local hospital called the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences posted a job for the emergency department. And a friend sent me a link and said, hey, this job looks like it'd be perfect for you. And I didn't really have a, like, a huge interest in doing this as a profession. Right. But I said, hey, like I gave it a shot, put together a resume, submitted an application. And a couple weeks later, I got the call from the doctor there and he called me in for an interview and I uh, went in for the interview and I got hired. And I, I ended up becoming the first person in the state of Arkansas uh, to be employed as a peer specialist in an emergency department. So I started that job and I was able to lead and implement and develop this peer support program in the emergency department where within one year I had interacted and worked with uh, up to close to 600 people, like about 591 people. I had the honor and opportunity to get uh, 215 people directly connected to treatment from the hospital and from the emergency department, meaning, you know, everything but walked inside the door with them. We got, you know, getting them directly connected to services, inpatient, outpatient, MAT clinics, recovery meetings, whatever that looked like for that person. You know, peer support's all about meeting the person right where they're at and and, and just being a, a hope shot, but also being someone that can help them navigate this complicated system of treatment and recovery and just kind of walking alongside them in that journey, not in front of them, not behind them, but right beside them. And that's what I did in the emergency department. Someone would come in for an overdose. Uh, they would, you know, get revived. They would get, you know, medically stable. And then I would get to come alongside them and introduce myself as someone in recovery um, that I've been in where you've been. I've gone through this. I know it sucks. I know it's rough. But I also know that, hey, this can be the foundation that starts the next chapter of your life. This can be uh, something new. This can be the start of something new. And if you're interested in that, like, hey, let's talk about it. And if you're not, here's my contact information. And I'm here for you in a non-judgmental, you know, equality type way. We're on the same level. And so I would do that. I would just walk alongside people and whatever they wanted to do when it came to treatment and recovery. Um, I get them Narcan, you know, take home boxes of, of nasal spray Narcan. I, I distributed over like 400 doses of Narcan through the emergency department that first year. And I just got to I got the honor. You know, God gives me and you the, the honor to take our past and to turn into purpose in the form of peer support to help other people find and sustain a life of recovery. And I got to do that there at the hospital. And and that really just uh, kind of birthed me a passion for peer support, a passion for recovery services in the state of Arkansas. And so I just kept getting involved. Any opportunity that I got, any any chance that I could uh, potentially uh, you know, advance that, uh, those, those tools or, or, or hone my craft as a peer specialist, I did. And so Arkansas has this really unique three-tier training model for, for peer support, where there's a core, advanced, and supervisor. And I ended up getting to progress through all three of those stages and becoming uh, one of the first 10 peer supervisors in the state of Arkansas, where, you know, I can supervise other peers and I've helped uh, I've had the opportunity to lead and develop uh, peer support programs in other hospitals across the state and supervise the peer specialists that work there. You know, it's just like taking my past with addiction and using it for purpose. Now I can take my past experience with peer support in a hospital and use it to help other hospitals and help other peer specialists implement this in their hospital and in their program. 
Um, and, and it's just been an amazing journey and amazing opportunity. I thank God every day that I get to wake up and do these things. Cause I know for, for me, recovery at some point along the way, it, it, it changed from something that I have to do to something that I get to do. And I think today I get to do this life. You know, I have to do some things to maintain this life, but I get to do them as well. And I'm grateful for that. <clears throat> the most recent develop, development in my life is uh, January of this year. Um, the hospital, uh, there was funding um, discussions. And so it had me a little uneasy about what my future looked like. And so there was a job opening that came for an organization called NADAC, the Association for Addiction Professionals. And so, like I mentioned earlier, Arkansas's peer support is three levels. And the state of Arkansas was looking to partner with an organization to certify those three levels. And they decided to partner with NADAC. Uh, in January of 2021 of this year, they partnered with NADAC to be the certifying body for all three of those levels in the state of Arkansas. And NADAC hired me. I got connected to Cynthia Moreno Tui, the executive director, and got to meet her and, and get to know her. And she decided to hire me as the peer specialist program manager to oversee and manage that certification process. So I stepped away from the hospital full time. I still work there now part time. A couple of nights a week, I'll go into the emergency department, provide direct peer services, and they'll hand out my contact information throughout the week for people to call and for me to help get them connected to services. My full-time job today is I work for NADAC, the Association for Addiction Professionals, and I manage the Arkansas Peer Specialist Program, where I now get to um, help other peer specialists get connected to the training, uh, go through the entire certification process, uh, help them in their continued education, the professional development, um, and get them, you know, to advance their career, to turn their recovery into a career and advance through the, the Arkansas model of peer support through the core advanced and supervisor levels. And I manage that program. And so anything from beginning the application process um, to getting signed up for your test to if there's an ethics complaint when it comes to peer support in the state of Arkansas, they, you know, we have an Arkansas peer ethics review committee that, that we have created and established to review those complaints and to make those decisions. Everything is led and governed by peers, people with lived experience from substance use and or mental health uh, challenges. And it's just an amazing program to be a part of. NADAC is an incredible organization that has partnered with the state of Arkansas and given peers, people with lived experience, a voice at the table in every decision, every level of the decision-making process. There is literally nothing about uh, people uh, with substance use and mental health disorders. No decisions are made about them in the state of Arkansas without people that have lived experience in recovery at those tables. And this is just another example of that through NADAC and uh, being able to manage this program. And so that's what I get to do for a job. But, you know, more than anything, uh, recovery has given me a life of purpose. You know, my purpose today is real simple. It's just to me, God really simplified the gospel for me where my purpose in life is to love God and love people and to do that to the best of my ability. And if I do that and I do that to the best of my ability every day, God will take all situations, anything that I go through, the storms that I will face in life, regardless if I'm getting high or not, I'm going to face some storms. I'm going to face some hardships. I'm going to have some financial struggles. I'm going to have some relationship issues. I'm going to face loss, grief death, a pandemic. I'm going to have all these different challenges that I will face. It's guaranteed. It's a promise. 
But if I will continue to love God and love people to the best of my ability through, in the midst of that and in the face of that, God will turn those situations around and he'll use them for good. He'll use them to, to develop stronger character in me. He'll use them to bring glory to his name. He'll use them to connect me with other people. He'll use them to help other people. And so I just learned that that's my purpose. You know, that's my life. And he lets me do that in a variety of ways. And one of those ways is through recovery and using my story to do that. Um, I have fully restored relationships with my family. Uh, my mom, my dad, they actually want me to be around. They they will let me go to their home when they're out of town. They'll let me drive their vehicles if I need to. I mean, you know, things that were lost for so long have now been restored and redeemed. Um, I'm a contributing member of my society. I actively give back to my community. I, I, I serve in a local church. I get to lead in a local church. I have healthy relationships with friends and family members. And uh, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a person of long-term recovery. And I'm also a person that gets to be involved in the recovery community and give back to that community each and every day. And I wake up and I'm not controlled by a substance. I'm not controlled by the desire or the need to get high or to drink. Um, and now I know this, that I got to continue doing the things that I've been doing to continue to get the results that I've been getting. And that uh, for me, that's why I know the disease of addiction is a real thing because I live with it every day. Um, and there are some days where my mind tells me some really dumb things. Um, but I know this, that those thoughts are not what get me in trouble. I got to take those thoughts and I got to practice the principles of recovery. I got to talk to someone else. I got to go to a meeting. I got to go do something else. And I got to get that thought out of Thank God today that I don't have to, I don't have to end up with action. That I may have thoughts, but I've been given principles. I've been given uh, ways to deal with those thoughts where they don't turn into actions. And I, I you know, I pray and I hope to continue doing that. And I'm I'm just grateful to be alive today. I'm grateful that I get to attend events like Mobilize Recovery and meet people like JR, who then get me connected to be able to sit here and share, share my story uh, with you all tonight. I got to say this, that without so many people, hundreds and hundreds of people that have invested importance in my life, I would not be sitting here tonight. I would probably be dead. But I certainly not, would not be where I'm at today in life. So without all those people and without my relationship with God, none of this is possible. Um, and no matter where you're at, no matter what you're going through, what your family member is going through, no matter how dark it may seem, four years ago on July 10, 2017, my life was a mess and it did not look good. And there's no doctor or person you would have talked to that, that they would have said this is going to be a good outcome. But I'll tell you this, that no matter what it looks like, there's hope. As long as there's breath in someone's lungs, there's hope. And to not ever give up on them um, because recovery is possible. Um, recovery is hard work, but it's certainly possible. And I'm, I'm, I'm evidence of that. And, I, and I'm just grateful that I, that I have the gift of recovery. Um, and I'm just really grateful that I got to be here tonight and share my story. And uh, I'm going to kick it back to you, Brett, and uh, let you take it from here. Wow. That is that was an incredible story, Kyle. Thank you so much for, for sharing that with us. And one of the things that I wanted to to touch on that you brought up, it was, a, it was several minutes ago, but you had talked about, and it's something that I also went through is, is identification and, and, and our ideas of what an addict is. I think for me, that was, that's part of why I stayed out there using for so long as I had those misconceptions that, an addict is, you know, like in, 
before I found recovery, my, my vision of a, of an addict was, you know, someone that's homeless, someone that uses needles. Like, you know, I had all these ideas in my head, like, you know, panhandling, like all these different things that I thought that's what addiction or that's what an addict is. And so those misconceptions helped me continue to use because I would compare my current situations to, to other people whether it was an actual person or just like this, this image that I had in my head of like, well, my life isn't that bad. My addiction isn't that bad. Uh, so I think that was a fantastic point that you brought up there. And man, talk about just an incredible story from, from where you were homeless shooting heroin to, to where you are now where you get to help and impact so many people, man, like that is an absolutely incredible incredible journey i mean just in in that short period of time you know in four years and just to see you know how god has used you and and continues to use you man like it's it's incredible to see that and man i love hearing these stories because it 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 brings hope to me you know even though i'm i'm living this recovery journey even though you know jr has allowed me to to be on this video and host this and have you know amazing guests like it gives me hope too of like, look at what can happen in our lives. And like you said, as long as we have breath in our lungs, like we still have that opportunity to live this, this beautiful life. And man, what somebody said it in the comments, you know, just the beauty and the gift that recovery is, man, it truly is like life is an, is incredible today without drugs, man. Like I, I never would have imagined that my life would be what it is now, but it's, it's absolutely incredible. So thank you again, Kyle, for sharing that. And uh, I think we're going to do that book giveaway here before, uh, before we wrap things up. So um, like I mentioned earlier, JR has another copy of Victoria's voice to give away. So we're going to do just like we did last week. Uh, we'll do uh, a number between one and 25 and whoever guesses that up. Oh, Ian's already guessing in the comments <laughs> uh, between one and 25. We'll get that copy of the book. Um, and if you are the winner, send a message to the recovery revolution page and Jr. can get your information. Uh, Ian's trying real hard to get that copy of the book. <laughs> oh, Jr. said Ian won last week. LOL. Yeah, because look at his look at look at his work ethic here, man. As soon as I hadn't even finished talking about it, and he's already punching numbers in. He's he's in it to win it. <laughs> there's there's Brooke. We got we got someone else to the game now. Yeah, now we got some more competition for Ian. There we go. Oh, Crystal. Crystal. Here we go. Here we go. Hey, Crystal. One in twenty-five. Oh, I accidentally put one of his numbers up there. I don't didn't mean to leave his number on the screen. Sorry, Ian. That was an accidental click. I'm still I'm still new to this, guys. So forgive me. I'm not Oh. JR, are you are you trying to win your own your own book, <laughs> your own giveaway? My mom put my number 13. That's my that's my lucky number. That was my basketball number. I know 13 is not lucky, but that's my number. Oh, 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 they're, oh, they're still coming in. I can't, I'm trying to scroll back up and see who was the first one to put it in. All right, there it is. Crystal, number 12. 
Hey, Crystal. All right. So, Crystal, if you'll send a message to the Recovery Revolution page and uh, link up with JR, and he'll get you your copy of the book. I saw multiple 12s, but I was like, I got to find who said it first because <laughs> they just kept, it was like, I, could, I couldn't scroll fast enough. <laughs> Crystal's uh, here in Arkansas with us. So, congratulations, oh, awesome. Crystal. Yeah. Awesome. I did see a, a question, Brett, that two people asked. If you don't mind, I'll answer it real quick. It was yeah. they're basically asking, you know, where did you find God? Where did where did you wave the white flag and surrender? And I saw someone ask this earlier question similar to that. And um, it wasn't a moment. It was a process. Um, I've learned that recovery for me and just the process of finding a relationship with God was very much that it was a process. And so when I explained that six weeks it was somewhere in that six weeks, that six weeks led to making that decision to give my life to God and to, and to surrender to the idea that he was going to use this program. But there was there is one particular moment where God really spoke to me for the first time, not audibly. I've never heard God's voice audibly, but I learned that reading God's word is one of the primary ways that he speaks to me and he speaks to us. And so I was reading in the laundry room at the Nehemiah house and I came to a verse in Matthew chapter seven, I believe, and it's talking about. Uh, it's, it's the comparison between a foolish man and a wise man. It's talking about how a fool builds his house on sand. And when the waves and the storms and the, and the winds of life come and they beat on the house, the, the house falls apart. Um, but then on the, on the other hand, the wise man builds his house on a rock. And so when the waves and the storms and the winds of life come and beat on the house that's built on the rock, it, it stands firm. It withstands it. And it was something about reading that during that particular point in time where God was showing me that I was a fool, that I'd been a fool. And that if I wanted to be a wise man, that I had to learn to build my house on the rock and that that was going to take some time and that was going to take a process. And so there was something about that that helped me surrender to God. It was something about that helped me to surrender to the idea of being in this long term program for a, for a significant period of time. Um, and so that that was if I was to look at a moment, that would be one of the, the highlights that really helped me in that process. But it was, it was more of a process of surrender than it was a moment. Mm. Mm. That's good stuff, man. Good stuff. Uh, let's see. Do, do we have any other questions for Kyle? Uh, I'll get with you after on that JR. It's, it's a complicated answer. JR is asking technical questions. <laughs> uh, Ian said, any spiritual awakenings in or during recovery? Yeah, uh, many, uh, you know, early on and continuously throughout the process. Because like I said earlier, this is about, you know, a lifestyle. So this, these are things that I continue to experience or ongoing. Um, I can highlight just a couple um, for spiritual awakenings, really the Holy Spirit and just the concept of the Holy Spirit and my relationship with him was one of those ones I was like, I don't really understand. Uh, but, I, but I learned that the Holy Spirit is like essentially like the fuel for me to live my life, whether that be my recovery or my Christian life, that I need the Holy Spirit and I have to have an active, engaged relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so that I have to uh, ask for that every day to be filled with the Holy Spirit to be guided by the Holy Spirit because my decision making and my heart and my own understanding 
he typically gets me in bad situations. And so I need the Holy Spirit. I need counsel from other people that are guided by the Holy Spirit. And so that principle is just like a fundamental principle, like a pillar in my life to be guided by, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Like it was like, okay, like Kyle, you don't really know what you're doing and you're not going to know what you're doing. You need to lean on God. You need to lean on his people for advice and counsel and guidance in life. Um, another one is that, and I wanted to say this before, before we wrapped up is that it, just because I'm not drinking or, or getting high today doesn't mean I don't make some bad decisions and that uh, I haven't experienced some hard times and that, you know, things are not always just great. Like I said, storms in life happen. And sometimes I've experienced their self-induced storms. I created the storm by poor decision-making. And so, but I, but I learned this, that no matter what, no matter what happens, no matter how low it may seem or how dark it may seem, that going back to using drugs and alcohol is never going to fix or change the problem. It's never going to make it better, certainly never going to make it go away, and it's never going to change. The one thing it could do is, is kill me. It could kill me, and it could take my life. And that is something that I don't want to happen, but it's always a reality. Um, the point, the reason I say that is because no matter what I face, whether I created or I don't create or if it's just life challenges that happen that we all face, like I got to continue to stay diligent and stay focused on my recovery, to stay focused on my relationship with God when I feel like it, when I don't feel like it. And I got to just keep doing those simple things that I've learned to do and to not go back, like going back to using or drinking will never be the right answer. Sometimes my mind tells me that it is right. And that's when I got to take those thoughts and I got to practice recovery with them. But going backwards is never the way to go. It says in Galatians 6, 9, to, it essentially says just, you know, never give up. Like, you know, it may, it may get challenging. It may get discouraging when you're doing the same things over and over again. And you feel like you're not getting any results. But it says, you know, in due time and right time, if we do not give up, we'll reap a harvest. And so that's like a mentality. It's one of the awakenings, the principles that, I, that I've really held on to is that, Never give up. Keep moving forward. Keep doing the things that you've learned to do and, and do not go backwards to using or drinking. Mm. Good stuff, man. That's a great answer to, to the question. Do we have any other questions for Kyle before we wrap up? Uh, we've got another one from Ian. He said, uh, any temptations during your recovery process? And if so, what are your tools in your toolbox to combat them? Yeah, I mean, all kinds of temptations, you know, I mean, uh, whether the temptation is uh, just most recently I was driving down the interstate, you know, obviously I hadn't drank or used in over four years and I have this life of recovery and this incredible things that God's given me. But the Budweiser truck and the Bud Light truck drive right past me at the same time. And for whatever reason, at that particular point in time, I immediately started romanticizing and thinking about and obsessing over the idea of drinking. Not really like drinking when it was at a low point in my life, but I was thinking about all the good times in college and how this was all this was fun and just the whole scene back then. And so the temptation there was to think was to have positive associations with drinking or using. Um, and the way that I combat that, the tools that I use was like I told on myself as soon as I could, just like I'm doing right now. I mean, the very next time that I was talking to someone, I told them that I had that crazy thought 
you know, and also as you, if you're in recovery, you probably heard playing the tape through, like, what is the reality of the thought that you're having? So the, the thought that I was having was immediately connected to a positive memory and a positive association. But when I can, when I, when I pause and, and take captive that thought and really think about what happens if that thought come, becomes an action, I, I start realizing that there's way more to the story and the way more to the story is actually the reality of what happens. Because if I start drinking, if I start using today, you know, it may not happen overnight, but pretty soon or another, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my vehicle. I'm going to lose my my relationships, my family. I'm going to probably end up in jail. I may end up dead. I'll end up back in treatment. I'll end up homeless. All those things will happen. And so I got to like process through that. And oftentimes one of the tools I use, I process through that with someone else out loud. And because when I say it and I talk to someone else about it, it's like, man, that's a terrible idea. Um, and some temptations are to give up, like just to give up, like not like necessarily go get hired drink, but just to, you know, I'm, I don't really want to do this anymore. You know, like some days it's just like, I don't feel like this is working. I'm not getting the benefits. I'm not as on fire as I was once was like, it doesn't feel as good. It's, you know, all these different, you know, thoughts and insecurities that I'll have going back and forth in my head. And so there's that temptation just to just, well, you know, just keep doing life and you'll be all right. You'll be able to keep getting the results without, you know, putting in the work. And, you know, the tools for that, again, is I'll talk about that out loud. But then also I'll like make myself go do those things. And, and a lot of times I feel like I'll wait, like we'll want to wait to the, for the feeling to come before we do something. But I've also learned that maybe if you just start doing it, that the momentum and the process of doing it actually can bring about the feeling of encouragement and the feeling of motivation that, that you're looking for. So instead of waiting on the, the, the feeling to be right, I just start doing it and the feeling may come afterwards or it may not, but I do know this, that I'll get the result that I'm looking for if I do the things that I've been doing. Good stuff, man. And I like JR, JR added on to that. I think we romanticize about our past and forget the pain, chaos, destruction, misery. Absolutely. Uh, JR also asked uh, any alternate programs outside of AA slash NA. Yeah, well, AA, NA, Celebrate Recovery, you know, all of those are really in the same ballpark. They're all 12-step programs. And, you know, outside of that, um, there are many different pathways to recovery that I, I do support and, and and support other people finding. You know, like there's, you know, the medication-assisted treatment that, that, I, that, I, that I believe works. You know, medication can be used and then recovery coupled with that. And it can be really effective for, for opioid use disorder. Um, there's smart recovery. And, you know, I don't I don't I haven't practiced a lot of that myself. But um, for me, just some of the basic principles that you can pull from all these different programs are community of people that are like minded, um, not going through things in isolation, being open and honest with one another are some of the, like the main things that you can pull from them all. Um, and just just having a, a group of people that you can walk through life uh uh, with is is oftentimes a huge thing but i also play golf now like i also like i'm outdoors and i go hiking and i just i try to enjoy life and for me that's just as much a part of my recovery as anything else because when i stopped drinking and getting high life didn't stop i didn't stop wanting to have fun in life so you know being active and getting those you know those natural chemicals that make us feel good that our body produces on its own just getting them going on a day-to-day -day basis and 
can can be really uh, rewarding and can be really fulfilling too. Um, and I and I also believe that can be a form of recovery. Great answers. I'm not seeing any other questions coming in. Jr. is putting some other alternatives there in the comments. Um, I right, skydiving. I went skydiving for the first time uh, about a couple months ago. That was a, that was a fun experience. <laughs> ironically, I also went skydiving pretty early on in my recovery. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think it was I, a blast. Yeah, I think I had like six months clean or something, and I ended up going skydiving. Nice. Yeah, I think there's something I think there's something to that though. Like when you first get clean, it's like you have to find some kind of like adrenaline rush or something because you're so used to that chaotic lifestyle and just like doing crazy stuff. I think yeah. I, I think now I've I've settled down. Like I've gotten a little older, I'm married, I have a kid, like I'm I'm like the the lame old guy that doesn't ever want to leave the house, but like early <laughs> in my recovery it was like you know, wanting to do, wanting to do skydiving and I picked up mountain biking and like doing all kinds of different crazy stuff. <laughs> yeah. Looking for the thrill. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, I'm not seeing any more questions coming in, but I would like to say, Kyle, thank you. Thank you again for coming on tonight, man. And, and just sharing your story with us, man. It was, it was absolutely incredible. And just, the journey that you've been on in the last four years that's that's absolutely incredible and just a testimony to what can happen when when we finally do surrender and and start working a recovery program and just the potential that every one of us has you know there's there's no limit to what what god can do with us once we get clean and man it's it's absolutely incredible to, to hear your story um it's amazing man so thank you thank you again for coming on here and sharing with us and uh as a reminder, guys, we do have an audio-only version of the live streams. Um, if you're looking for that, you can search Recovery Revolution Live on your favorite podcast players. There's also now a podcast tab on our Facebook page, so you can listen to it directly from Facebook if you don't like to look at us, which is understandable. <laughs> um, I don't I don't enjoy watching myself on video, so I get it. Um and I also have another podcast called Recovery Survey. I release an episode every Wednesday. They're a little smaller, usually about 30-minute uh, segments. Um, this upcoming week, we're, I have a guest on that's going to be talking about eating disorders and anorexia. So if that's something that you struggle with, uh, I would definitely recommend checking that out. You can find that anywhere you get podcasts. Um, I don't think I have any other announcements I almost went into like my default mode of like doing announcements at the end of a meeting <laughs> like open servants positions yeah. and to our business meeting we got upcoming events coming up yeah <laughs> well I'm I'm really grateful uh for you Brett for JR and just the recovery revolution page the podcast the live streams everything that you're doing and I'm so thankful for the opportunity to share uh my recovery my story. Um, and I hope my prayer is that it gives other people hope, encouragement, breaks stigma, uh, because that's what we're all here to do is to just take our past and use it to help other people. So I'm grateful for the opportunity and I've enjoyed spending some time with you tonight. Yeah. And I'll echo that too. Thank you, JR. Cause without, without him, this page wouldn't exist and we wouldn't have this awesome platform with a 
with a group full of other recovering addicts that are here to to listen to us talk so jr thank you for for being who you are and the incredible person you are and creating this group um i know it's helping a lot of people so thank you for that all right guys we'll be back next week at the same time 7 p.m central with another fantastic guest so please be sure to come back to the facebook page and i'm sure that we'll have some some teasers and stuff coming up on the page letting you know about who next week's guest is until next until next time i'm brett i i need to work on a sign off because i <laughs> that's very unnatural <laughs> well thank you brett thanks everyone <laughs> good night everybody <laughs>